0: I want to welcome you once again to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we are really glad that you've um, chosen to worship with us uh, this Sunday morning, especially if you're a guest with us. I'm, on, I'm honored that you would uh, spend a Sunday morning with us in this way. If I haven't got a chance to meet you yet, um, I'd love to introduce myself to you. So if you have some time afterwards, hang around and just let me say hi to you face to face. Like Brayden said, we're continuing on um, walking through the book of John, the gospel of John, and we're in verse uh, chapter 13, I should say. Let me pray for us, uh, and then we'll jump in. Father, I just ask that you would allow us to center ourselves now on you, but your spirit would help us do that. I ask that as we begin to look at the final days of jesus's um, life on earth prior to the resurrection i would pray that you um, would help us put ourselves in the place put ourselves in those moments that the disciples shared with jesus um, in these in these final moments i pray that we would realize that the words we're reading this morning from from john's gospel are your very words This is how you've revealed yourself to us. These words have power. These words are authoritative. And I pray because of those things, we would would put ourselves under you this morning, under your word this morning. I pray that your spirit would would move today, would change our minds, would change our hearts, would change um, the way we uh, live when we leave this place. Help us understand. Give us insight. We love you. It's in your son's name, we pray. Amen. We mentioned last week as we began chapter 13, we're getting into really the final hours of Jesus's life on earth prior to the cross and the resurrection. So we, we would think about going back to this time and think if you had just hours to, 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 to spend with your, the people closest to you, what would you say What would you say to them these words would be probably um, if you knew you were going to die you they they would be um highly thought of all right thought through you would you would think about those things you would be intentional with the words you use and jesus is in fact doing that he's preparing them for his departure john the john the, the one of the disciples who was there in these moments with jesus is now reflecting back writing this gospel 50 to 60 years approximately after these events took place So imagine John uh, writing these things down and and probably has them written down somewhere, but now he's compiling them, putting them into a book so that we may believe, which is what he's told us in this book, the purpose of him writing this. And the one maybe most um, common theme in these next five chapters of this book is this idea of love, love. Simple, straightforward idea, right? We're all, we've all heard of it, we're all familiar with it, and Jesus is really going to show us what the biblical idea of love is. Well, here's the problem with us, though. We use love for everything. We use those words, and, and they can mean uh, different degrees of things, right? Like, I can, I can say, I love how our defense tackled yesterday, and I can also say, I love God in the same breath, Right? I can say that I love the television show, The Office, and I also love my wife, Nicole, and my boys, Jax and Tate. Completely different ballpark on the intensity and what we're, we're aiming at, right? I love, at, at my favorite Mexican restaurant, some tacos and some chips and salsa, sorry I'm making you hungry, and a cold drink, and I love those things, but I also love the church, the Bride of Christ, and you can see the weight that should be given to loving those things, and this is just the beginning of our problem. One A, a rabbi by the name of David Wolp uh, wrote in a, in a time article a few years ago talking about this idea of love. He says the word "love" is mostly used according to the first definition given in the dictionary, an intense feeling of deep affection it 's a very straightforward feeling straight out of. Um, Any dictionary you look at. In other words, love is what one feels. He says, after years spent speaking with couples before, during, and after marriage, and of talking to parents and children struggling with their relationships, I am convinced of the partiality of the definition. Love should be seen not as a feeling, but as an enacted emotion. To love is to feel and act lovingly. Now, Rabbi Wolp gets closer to what I think the biblical definition is, but he still falls short because he doesn't address who is this love directed towards. You can still have an, in, an acted emotion, but turned around on yourself. See, at its basic level, love is putting the needs and cares of others before our own. That's the basic, um, really biblical definition of love. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, says this about agape love, one of the words used in the original language for love, kind of the highest form of love that we see in the scriptures. Lewis says, this is our chief aim, the unconditional love of the Father given to us through his Son. That's the biblical definition of love. That's the, The biblical ideal of love is this agape love. That is what we shoot for as followers of Jesus but how hard is it to live this out, right? How hard is it to truly love unconditionally for all of us in this room? There's so many things that get in the way of us loving in this way. Selfishness, right? We live in a you-do-you world, right? You do you, right? You do what makes you happy. You decide what is right and wrong internally, and you follow that. Follow your dreams. Follow your passions. No no nuance there. Just unbridled, follow your passions. That is not going to get you aimed at agape love. It's narcissism, right? It's, it's the world we're just so used to having the world revolve around us, even without even knowing it. And technology doesn't help us, right? Every social media platform, it, kind of the existence of social media is for you, for me, to get to create my own community my, the people that agree with me, people that are like me, people that I want to see in algorithms on all the social media sites just feeding us more and more of what we want. And usually those things kind of justify or um, cement more what we believe in. And we live in these perpetual echo chambers of people agreeing with us. And again, it just turns inward over and over and over. We go to the grocery store and you talk about choices My goodness, like the the cereal aisle or the chip aisle, right? I mean, you you get paralyzed by all the choices. Why? Because we need choices, right? I guess this is about us. We need to go into a place and make sure we all can find exactly what we need on those aisles. See, the world is built to kind of form us into this idea of selfishness or narcissism. And here's the, the trouble, right? Love is not a neutral thing. When we love something, we're either taking from someone else or taking from some, something else or someone else and using it to benefit us, or we're giving something away, we're giving away blessing, we're giving away whatever it is so that someone else would be cared for, loved, built up. You can't. There's no neutral when it comes to love. It's either taking in or it's giving away. In the first verse of this chapter, chapter 13, we looked at it last week, and this really is kind of the intro verse for this farewell discourse that Jesus is, is having with his closest followers. And John says this towards the end of this verse. It says, he says, now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, and he's preparing them, he says, having loved his own, there's that word, loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We talked about this last week, John, just probably uh, reflecting back and having these, these overwhelming thoughts, looking back 50, 60 years later, thinking, just being overwhelmed that, yes, he loved us. He actually went through with it, right? He told us he loved us and he cared for us for three years, but he didn't bail at the last minute. He went through the suffering and the shame to the end. Yes, he loved us to the end, is what John is thinking. And then in this particular passage we're going to look at today, this is one of Jesus' probably the most, the most famous commands in all the scriptures, John 13, 34 through 35. Like This is the application for today. He says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love, there it is again, for one another. You see, I always thought, and then maybe some of you are here and you're, you're skeptics, you're new to the faith, you're checking this out. I've always thought that this idea of, of biblical love, of self-giving, agape love that Jesus lays out here is one of the greatest proofs and defense, the defenses of Christianity. Right? This love that we see amongst the members of the Trinity, this self-giving love. Because here's the deal: If you don't believe in God, if you don't believe there is is a, um, a God out there, especially the God of the Bible, let's just take you're an atheist. Where does the idea of self giving love come from? Right, one of the core foundations of atheism is is evolution. Right, survival of the fittest. Right, the strongest survive. How in the world, if that is the mechanism for that philosophy, how in the world can you ever give your stuff away, your life away, lay down your life in death, if all that there is is keep going, right? Survive. survival of the fittest. There's no meaning here, but just get in yours while you're on earth. How in the world do you have any concept of love if that is your worldview, if that is your philosophy? So I think there's even some apologetic in here for the faith. I think as human beings, we all want to experience this self-giving love. I would love, I love the idea of someone laying down their life for me. That's heroic. That inspires us from the inside. This is what great books and movies are made of. Where does that idea come from? I believe it comes from the scriptures. This is the highest form, of the idea of love, this agape love. So this morning, here's what we're going to look at briefly. We're going to look at the setting. We've already seen the application. We're going to look at the setting. There's so much here that John's trying to tell us in the details. We're going to look at the setting, and then we're going to see this statement where Jesus is trying to help them in their confusion. This is a confusing part of this conversation for the disciples, and we'll see that. And then we're going to see how there's a couple of different ways to respond, like Judas, like Peter, both that are are wrong, the wrong ways to, to, to respond. But I think John intentionally puts those, those guys together in this chapter for us to reflect. And then we're going to swing back to the application and try to figure out how do we do this. Okay, so the setting. Let's look at verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. He says, one of you will betray me. And again, imagine you're sitting around here with the rest of the disciples you don't know this is really going to happen, right? There's been some cues that Jesus has dropped in this chapter, but this, he comes out and finally says it. One of you will betray me. These 12 guys who were brothers, who were a family, who had walked together with Jesus for three years and now he's saying, one of them, is going, one of you is going to betray me. Some commentators think when John says Jesus was troubled in his spirit, this might have been a form of depression. Right? Jesus was struggling here. This is a deep deep trouble and, and sensitivity in Jesus' spirit to what is about to happen. And we would all feel the same way, right? If we, were on the, if we knew someone was going to betray us and that was, that was heading there and we knew where the next few hours were going in Jesus' life, we would experience the same thing. Another peek into just the humanity of Jesus in this moment. And then again, he says, Truly and truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, if you're there and you don't know who this is, right? You're starting to thinking, well, who is it? Is it me? Is it him? Is it him? And you can imagine what's going on in the disciples' minds sitting around this table. He gives them a chance here to examine themselves. Am I going to follow him to the end? Am I going to be the one that backs out? In verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved, now this is John, right? When we see the disciple that Jesus loved, this clues us into the John, the writer of this book, um, was reclining at a table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? Now when I've always read this, um, at least at the beginning of my walk with the Lord, like. I was always confused about some of the descriptors here. Like, how like, were how they sitting like he was like, like leaning back against Jesus? Like, this isn't our custom, right, when we sit around dinner, dinner table. And, and the, the, most, the most famous picture of this is Da Vinci's Last Supper painting. And usually, and Da Vinci had to make it look like kind of one long table, and he has all the disciples there at the table. And that's not exactly the way... This would have taken place. So I want to give you some illustrations here. Because again, it's so important for us to put ourselves in the position of the disciples here. So go ahead and throw that first picture up. This is called um, the Cynical. And it is uh, where most historians, archaeologists believe that this is the actual room where where, where all of this um, last discourse took place. The upper room. Right. Most people think this was it. Now, this picture's taken after it has been restored a little bit, but that's a, that's a fairly good representation of the room, the actual room, that Jesus had this conversation with his disciples. And now, they were sitting and reclining at what is called a Roman uh, triclinium table. You can show the next picture here. I have a few pictures of these. So, you notice that there's, um, they were always in the form of a U-shape, right? And you, notice, you see the, the seating there. It wasn't... Um, not chairs like we would sit around at a dinner table. Not really couches either, right? Because they didn't have backs on them. They were kind of these, these benches that were covered with pillows. You notice in this picture, there were just two small tables filled up, probably a smaller dinner. But that is what the, 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 the people would eat off of. You can go to the next picture. This is more of a, a modern day recreation of this. You have the pillows and you have the table in front there uh, to put um, wine or bread or whatever else. And then there's one more here. This is probably what a big feast would have looked like around one of these tables, right? You still see the kind of the couches around here. Um, so it's definitely more of kind of a, a lounging atmosphere, right? And you would, the traditional was, was you would have, you would lean on your left elbow, lean on the pillow, and you would eat with your right hand. And so everybody was kind of leaning in one way or the other, and then the, the, your legs would be going out to the back, uh, kind of behind you, out of the way of everyone else, Okay? So this is, this is how this is happening. This is why those kind of weird adjectives and verbs that John uses here, they don't really make sense when you think about a normal dinner table, because it wasn't what we would think of a normal dinner table. It was um, something that looked like this. Uh, thanks, Jared. You can take those down now. Um, and so what we have here is you, you see that Jesus is talking to John, kind of in a private conversation, because John is next to Jesus, right? Um, and it, it, he, he's playing, like, John's playing the middleman, really, for Peter here, right? So Peter's like, you can imagine, like, he sees John and Jesus talking, hey, 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 John, what's he saying? Like, what's he saying to you? Tell me, tell me, right? And so John is kind of playing middleman here for Peter. And then in verse 26, Jesus answered, um, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. So again, he's just talking to John about who he's going to give the morsel to in these things. So no one else knows why uh, he said this to Judas. Um, some thought it was because Judas had the money bag. Judas was, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Verse 30 though, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Interesting phrase there from John it was night. Like, it, it, something, nothing, nothing changed in that moment from before this conversation to after this conversation with daytime, nighttime. But it's like John is setting the scene here, thinking back. Like, things are getting dark. It was night, it was gloomy. One of them had just left. One of their brothers had just left. And obviously, um, they're going to put it together that he was the one that betrayed Jesus. Now, John doesn't have a, an account of the Garden of Gethsemane as the other three uh, gospel writers do. But some, um, most theologians, commentators think that this is kind of John's version, right? John's thinking back, and this was kind of the moment that John remembers maybe the most of Jesus Kind of, um, of of his anguish and of his pain of the, and of the darkness of um, this night that was before them. Verse 31 says, When he had gone out, so when Judas had left, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. Like now. Not will be, but right now. Right now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him... God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Now, this is all about discipleship, right? What Jesus is about to unpack for them, he's given them clarity about what's about to happen. He's trying to help them as followers of Jesus. He's already called them to follow him, right? he's already called them to do that. But now he's leaving, they're confused about the betrayal. And so Jesus is trying to lay out for them what is going to happen. He's trying to help them understand how this is going to work. This is why these five chapters of John, 13 through 17, could be just a discipleship manual in and of themselves. Because Jesus is passing on everything he can think of to them before he goes away. I think of John here, what John's thinking. Okay? John has just watched Judas leave. He can't believe it. Like like he's got to be shocked. Because he knows exactly what Judas is doing, because Jesus told him, right? And, and, and John's trying to put that together, and then Jesus says, now I'm going to be glorified. Now is the Son of Man glorified right now. So John's head has got to be spinning. Now, what is happening here? What is Jesus talking about? And then beginning in verse 33, um, this is one of probably the, the moments that John remembers most, I am guess, thinking back. Verse 33, and this is why Jesus used this, this, this word, a technia. For little children in the, in the original language here. He doesn't use children. There's another word for that. He uses little children. It's little, ch- little children talking to these grown men. Yet a while while I'm with you, like just a little bit longer, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, this would have, once again, blown their minds. Like, what, what, what Jesus Like, what are you talking about? Like, we can't come with you. We're with you to the end. We're not going anywhere. We're not running off like Judas. We want to be with you till the end. But Jesus is basically saying, not yet. Not right now. You don't know what's coming, but you can't come with me right now. And this is is the only time this word little children is used in all the New Testament Right? There's a reason that Jesus uses this intimate, kind of endearing language to his disciples. He wants to care for them. But he's also giving them some hard stuff to chew on, right? Like, you can't come with me where, where I'm going. And he actually compares it back to when he said it to the Jews, right? And these, l- listen to these verses. One in, in chapter 7, verse 34. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I'm going, you, can, you, you cannot come. This is is Jesus talking to the the Jews just a little bit ago, right? The Jewish leaders. Not good for them. John 8, 21. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me. Like, you're going to look for me, and you will die in your sin. Ouch. Where I am going, you cannot come. So he's telling the disciples, hey, just like I told the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. And they're like, what? Like, what you told the Jews, you basically, like, kind of pushed them out in those moments. But notice that Jesus leaves a few things out that he said to the Jews. He doesn't say, you will seek me and not find me. He doesn't say, you will seek me, you won't find me, and then you'll die in your sin. He doesn't say that either to the disciples. He says, little children, where I'm going, you cannot come. And we know, looking back from where we stand, that it's only for a moment. But Jesus is preparing them for what lies ahead. He's trying to give them something to hold on to. Then we see in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. So he doesn't even address what he just said. He just goes straight into the command, that you would love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Right? So that he's, given us, he's given them a clear, clear marching orders. It's, it's unclear, it's a little confusing, they're scared, they're surprised, but he said, listen, little children, love one another. Love one another. He wants them to hear that. And one kind of grammatical thing here that's really important, put uh, verse 34 back up there. Um, this, this preposition as, there in the, uh, um, in the middle of verse 34 there, um, just as I have loved you. That preposition there can be translated as or actually from. And from just sounds strange, right? That's why they don't translate it that way, that you love one another just from I have loved you, right? But it actually, um, it, it's, it's not just a comparison preposition, like like love me as I loved you or, or model your love after me. That's what, when we read it, and that's true, but there's a deeper meaning if you read that from from. Like love one another from the, 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 the source, from the actual source of the love that I have shown you. Like, tap into the love that I have shown you, and with that love is the love you go forth with to love one another. We can't miss that here. Jesus is clearly saying, hey, you go out and try really hard to love one another. Right? That's impossible. We've seen it's impossible for us as selfish human beings to to live a life consistently agape-loving other people. It's impossible. We have to tap into a different source, and Jesus is giving us the source here with this command one commentator bruner who we refer to a lot he says this he says you can kind of restate this by saying jesus saying have a heart for one another from my heart for you like take bits something from the heart i have for you and have that same heart for each other Then he says that everyone or all people will know you by the way you love one another, right? We think of evangelism and mission and wanting to see people who don't know Jesus come to know Jesus and experience the grace and mercy and love that we've been shown in Christ. He's saying the way that the world is going to know, even more than your words, at least in this context he's saying, it's even more than your words, the world is going to watch you how you treat each other, and that's how they're going to know you're my disciples. And there's one thing built in here that's that's kind of assumed is that we would actually be loving one another in the midst of the world. So the command here is not, hey, like, hive off from the world, create your own little community, and just wait for Jesus to return and love each other really, really well. No. The world couldn't see us if we did that. The assumption here is that we would love one another, but all the while doing this in the world all the while doing this among different religious groups, people who believe differently from us, people whose definition of love is different from us. So we love one another as a community, so it's not an individualistic thing. It's not, hey, go off and be a, a solo missionary by yourself. You lack the community that's going to actually show people who a, what a disciple is. That means we live as the church in the world, our love for one another. For you physicists, physicists in here, there's, there's two kinds of forces in mission in the scriptures. You have the centripetal force, right? It's the force that pulls in. And the c- centrifugal, with the F force, centrifugal force, is the, is the force that pushes out. So mission, there's, there's both in the, in the scriptures, right? We often think of going out, like the apostles going out, the centrifugal force, right? Going out in, on mission, there's also a pulling in, an attracting in form of mission, and this is what Jesus is speaking to here. People are going to be drawn in. People are going to be curious by how you treat one another and be drawn into the community of faith because this love is alien. It's foreign. It's unselfish. It's not the, it's not the de facto uh, way of the world. It's a different kind of love. So really, Jesus' love was given to his disciples to create in them a love for each other in the midst of a watching world. In the midst of a watching world. Only the person who has been loved can love. And only the person who has been loved in this way can actually love in this way. And John also wrote, the, the gospel writer here wrote three epistles in the New Testament. 1 John, Second John, Third John, right? Really simple for us, right? They, didn't, they just put a number behind the guy's name, um, in 1 John, chapter 2, 7 and 8, he says this. And again, he, 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 this is John's language, right? So he's, he's, there's a lot of overlap here. Beloved, he's talking to the church, Christians, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is that the word that you have, you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Notice it's in us. Speaking of our union with christ the fact that we're united to christ through the gospel the power of the holy spirit That's what that in language is in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining And it's light that we know light, but it's also a deeper metaphor for jesus Let's look at the end of the chapter. We have peter here. Good old peter verse 36 simon peter said to him lord Where are you going? You can imagine peter here we know what peter's temperament is his head has to be spinning jesus answered him where i am going you cannot follow me now but you will follow me afterward there's our hope right there's a glimmer of hope for the disciples right oh you're going to follow me eventually but not now and here's peter kind of bucking up peter says to him lord why can i not follow you now i will lay down my life for you it's probably thinking of judas and how much of a, a how loyal he is and compared to judas he's saying i'm not going to leave you I'm with you to the end. Let me fight for you. Verse 38. And Jesus answered, well, Will you lay down your life for me? Like, you, you really think you're going to lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Right? Peter's bringing his bravado, this self strength, this pride, bringing it to the table here in this upper room when none of the opposition is around. And Jesus, I'm sure in his mind, is like, Peter, Peter, Peter. You, know, you don't even know what's coming. Right? You're going to be so scared of the authorities that you're going to run from a little girl in a few hours. So don't bring this now, Peter. Just wait. Just wait. Right? He didn't say it here, but he's going to say hey, that that spirit's going to come. He's going to empower you. You're going to you're going you're going to be a brave disciple one day, but not now, Peter. Right. So one of the one of the again the pat the, one of the main things this passage is teaching is how do and it's a question for us here. How do we relate to Jesus? an invisible Lord, right, to, to us, right? We don't have the physical Jesus. We don't, we don't have, and, and, and they, they're not either, right? Jesus is going to go away. He's going to come back, but then he's going to go away again. He's going to ascend. And so he's trying to prepare them. What does it look like for you guys and the guys that they would lead to the Lord and the church It would be, how do we follow Jesus in a different form than he is in now? So the next several chapters of this book, that's what the answer is. How do we still follow him when he's not here? We're going to get into the Holy Spirit and all of that in the coming weeks. But they're struggling with this. Now, John here, and this is, I think, creative of John, right? He puts, he's going back and he thinks through this. He puts the, the story of Judas right up against the story of Peter. And he highlights both of them. And I think they're warnings for both of us. One of the, one of the warnings is obviously Judas, Right? Judas, like, G, it's beautiful how much Jesus still loves, how strong the divine love of Jesus is, knowing what Judas is going to do, yet he still invites him to the table. He still lets him participate in the meal. He lets him have the bread. He, he invites him into this community. Maybe it's one last chance for him to change his mind, Jesus is thinking, um, but he invites him in. But he, Judas, he, he, he played the game, right? Like, he, he blended in. All, for three years, they thought that he was a disciple like they were. He was strong. He he he, he followed. Like there, there's nothing in the Gospels up until this point that really show us that Judas would do this. But we see that this was a progression as we look back. Starting in verse 13, uh, verse two, um, John says that that, that, that or Jesus said that the Satan is is around. Right? Like he's he's coming. So the, the enemy's coming. And then all the way to verse 27, Satan enters Judas, right? So it's this progression of Judas becoming more and more um, opposed to Jesus. And we know that Judas would, um, well, if you, if you don't know, Judas would eventually end his own life. We don't know exactly why, but it had to be the shame, had to be the guilt, had to be everything kind of, kind of piling on him after three years of walking with Jesus. How could he have done that? And yet Jesus knows, because he is sovereign, he knows what's going to happen, yet he honors Judas. But here's here's where Judas serves as a warning, and I think this is what John wants us to feel here. He wants us to reflect that any one of us is guilty at any time of turning our back on Jesus. We are. We're not immune to the influence of Satan just because we're followers of Jesus. Satan can affect us. Satan can influence us. All of us are capable of kind of going off the pathway in the direction that Judas did. And we need to feel that in some sense. We need to feel that warning. I think that's why this is in the scriptures. And then we have Peter, right? Peter's the other example. He's prideful. He loves Jesus. It's it's not, it is so clear that Peter loves Jesus. But the way he's going about it, he's impatient. He lacks self-control. He thinks he is awesome. He thinks he can fight off the Roman authorities by himself. And that's a, a warning for us as well. Are we a little bit too arrogant? Do we lean into our own strength too much? Do we, uh, do we need to just sit back and allow the Spirit to empower us to follow Jesus in the way that the Bible has laid out? So we have two really uh, poor ways to respond in this moment to Jesus, right? But Jesus has obviously given us the best way to respond, and that is how he has loved us. So how do we love one another? Back to the original command. How does this work? How are we going to do this when we're so selfish, we're so narcissistic, right? Like I was thinking about this week, and and um, we have six and two year old boys, and um, they just bring out so much selfishness in me, right? Like I am overly protective of my time, my energy, the noise level in the house, the chaos in the house, and I find myself Just kind of having these little snappy moments, and my anger dwelling up, and it's because it's tapping into my control, and wanting to have the house a certain way, and I want this certain time to be a certain way, and it needs to be quiet. And I just become very, very selfish. This also happens with Nicole, but I think it's most evident with our boys. And here's the deal, I love them. I love them more than any other human being in the world, Nicole and the boys, right? I love them. But they're the ones I'm most selfish towards. They're the ones that I often kind of snap at the most when they're, they're, they're encroaching upon my, my freedoms, my time, my energy. I just want this space to do X, Y, and Z. How selfish am I to treat the people closest to me in this way? And if I can't treat these, the, the people in my life this way, if I can't be selfless for them, I'm not going to be, be able to be selfless for anyone else. I need help. I cannot do this in my own power. How can we do it? how How can we love one another well? Right when we when we we disagree from church to church and denomination to denomination, tribe to tribe about so many different secondary and tertiary things. How can we lay those things aside and not continue to disagree and process through those things? But how can we do it with a loving posture? How can we truly treat them like brothers and sisters? I think this is what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, Sam Harris, who's a, one, a modern atheist, smart guy, talks about this, kind of the atheist kind of uh, view on um, really selfishness and, and really and, and as it ties to love. The well-being of others, especially those closest to us, is one of our most primary and indeed most selfish interests. And, and he would go on to say in, in, in their teachings is that like, yeah, ultimately everything is going to terminate on us. Right? because we have no guiding love principle outside of us. But the world can still be a good place, because if I look out for my own interests, then it's going to make actually the world a better place, because I'm going to be working and helping others do what they do, because ultimately that's the best for me. But ultimately it still terminates on ourselves. Like we should love other people, because it actually comes around and it's good for us. It seems loving, but again, it stops with ultimately what's good For us. Again, if there's not a God, how do we love one another in this way? Fleming Rutledge, uh, an awesome um, Christian author, says this. She says, sentimental, overly spiritualized love is not capable of the sustained, unconditional agape of Christ shown on the cross. She calls this enlightened, self-interest love. Like This is kind of the highest form of love that I think our world, our culture puts out there. But it still comes back and terminates on what is best for me, like what's going to help me the most, because it's a It's 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 I'm going to do my I'm going to do you, like you do you right I'm going to do me you do you Let's just kind of agree to disagree here, and that is that does not work right. Ultimately, that is not work, right? The starting with Augustine and Luther and, and the Puritans really kind of popularized this idea of this word incandescence. It's it's when it's when the love that God has given us kind of curves in on itself, right? So we've been given this capacity to love. We've been given this ability to love by God. And because of the fall, because of our selfish nature, as human beings, we have this tendency to that love starts to curve in on itself. And all that ability to love, all that ability to give away begins to be pointed back towards ourselves. That's why it's this, this curve uh, word in Latin there that the reformers and the Puritans used. And we know we're all guilty of this, Right? We, we decide what we want. We decide that we think something is right. We'll use, we'll use science. We'll use politics. We'll use research data. We'll use all sorts of stuff to back up what we think is right because that is the goal, right? To be right. Because that's going to bring me the most satisfaction. It's going to bring me the most joy. So how do we do this? We look to Jesus. and Listen to First John 2, 9 through 11. Getting back on the application here. The first thing we have to do is we have to meditate on the love, God, the love of God that he has for us. Listen to 1 John again in his epistle, kind of explaining this. Whoever says he is in the light, and don't think like a light room. Think of Jesus being the light and this, this idea of union. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. He's proven himself not to be a Christian. Verse 10, whoever loves his brother or sister there, his brother or sister abides in the light Again, abides in Jesus, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Once again, what makes, gives us the ability to, to do this is that we're in Christ. We've been united to Christ through the gospel through his love so it's not just he's modeled for us on how to love other people which he has he's actually given us the ability to love other people the energy to fuel because now we're united to him through the holy spirit right and that all comes through his grace and his mercy apart from anything we've done that is what we have to dwell on there's no way we can love one another so that the world can see that we are disciples without first going back to how jesus has loved us and this is the new commandment Uh, Jesus says. So when we think of those in words in this passage, in the light, saying in Jesus, he is the light, this John has said in his book. So number one, meditate on the good news. Meditate on God's love for you found in Jesus, in your union with Jesus, your connectedness to him. Secondly, simple, do small things with great love, right? Don't, Don't try to Go out and do some um, spectacular uh, deeds of love here. Look around you. Look around at your brothers and sisters. This is, again, another push for why you need to be living life around brothers and sisters. And at Providence Road, we call those gospel communities. Because that is where you're going to see the need. That is where you're going to see practical, everyday needs that need to be met in a sacrificial way. This is the love that Jesus has for us and he wants to have for others. It's others-focused, and it's sacrificial. So dwell and think about the love that Jesus has for you as a follower of Jesus. And then allow that to move you and motivate you through the Spirit to love other people this week. In a normal, everyday thing. Don't go around necessarily looking for the spectacular. Just everyday life. How can you lay down your life for your brothers and sisters? Let's pray. Father, we, we want to love you. We want to love other people and, 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 and eventually the world like you've loved us. But we need your help. I pray that we leave here, that we would be thinking and dwelling more on your grace and your mercy and love and less on ourselves. And that through that process, you would bring to mind how we can love one another as brothers and sisters in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.